0: All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. I want to thank Renee McCormick again for doing the Sunday school class where she shared uh, about the extension. And I do want to encourage you in a couple of ways. um, Go take the tour. Uh, You just need to email her and see the facility for yourself. Uh, She does a great job of explaining what the extension does uh, and is doing. Um, There's a couple of different ways that we could get involved. They're looking for a van. Are you guys still looking for a van? Yeah. Uh, they're in the process of looking for a van because it takes a lot to move uh, those folks from point A to point B from time to time. And so uh, we'd love to be able to participate in helping them uh, get that transportation. And then there's an opportunity on, uh, on Sunday night to actually engage on the men's side. We've been going and will continue to go on the women's side, but on the men's side, uh, being that it's a little bit larger, it's a little bit more um, more involved in terms of the meal because you got to feed 50 folks. And so uh, if anybody would be interested in participating in that, um, I am willing to do the, the preaching part uh, if somebody's willing to do the food part. But I'm not going to do both the food and the preaching, uh, because one, I'm a terrible cook, and, uh, and two, I, that's just too much uh, on Sundays. So uh, I'd love to do it but I can't do it by myself, so we would need probably six to 10 folks who would be committed to doing that. I don't know what Sundays I have open, but, but uh, I'm sure Renee will let us know. And if you wanna try to give it a go, I'm willing to do it. And so, um, and you know, those of you who know my background, uh, you, you know, it would be be like getting the band back together. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, if you want to witness that for yourself up close and personal, we can do it there. Um, and uh, and I think that's it. But thank you again for coming and sharing. It, actually, if any of you have heard of the show Intervention, anybody heard of the show Intervention? There's actually about a six or seven part series on Cobb County and the opioid crisis in Cobb County. And the, the extension is featured for uh, a couple of minutes and one of the residents is featured featured. Yeah. January 16th. Yeah. That particular episode. And if you have access to any, you know, everything you can live stream now, there's no, we are not encumbered by anything anymore. Thanks to the internet. And so, uh, so I would encourage you to check that out because it's, it's a, it is a very serious problem here in our community. And this is a way in which we can be missional. So, uh, let's continue to serve. All right. All right. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, this morning, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion of Christ or the death, the, uh, uh, the crucifixion, death, and burial of Christ. Um, this, is a, uh, this is just a heavy uh, passage, in part uh, because Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time describing the crucifixion itself. In fact, he just says he was crucified. Now, what he does explain a good deal of is the mocking that Christ endures on the cross. And so, if you remember from last week, Christ had already endured a significant amount of mocking from uh, the soldiers themselves. And what struck me, and I hope it struck you, was that, that they felt the need to even do that. It wasn't that he was personally offensive to them. Uh, It's just, they. that's just what they did. It's very interesting, and I'll read to you a little bit later a couple of selections from a man named Primo Levi, who was an Italian Jew who um, was in Auschwitz, and he wrote a series of books on his time in Auschwitz. One's called Survival in Auschwitz, the other's the Drowned and the Saved, and then Reawakening. And so he uh, was struck by, as they were being herded into and out of the cattle cars, uh, how the men would just kick and beat them with no expressions on their face whatsoever. Now, you may say, well, they're Germans. Do Germans have expressions? Yes, they do. Um, I don't know what they are, but they have them. And, but what struck him is they were just doing their job. And it just, and and he just couldn't get his head around. How can you treat another human being like that, void of anger, as if it were just what you do every single day of the week? In the same way, uh, there's a rage that is coming forth from people toward Christ that, uh, that, that is inexplicable. It, it, it goes beyond understanding. And what's beautiful about this passage is, remember from last week, when Judas came seeking atonement, and he came to the right place, if you remember, which is the chief priests and, and the temple itself. And remember what he was told. See to it yourself. And remember, his conclusion was only one death could atone, and that was his own. And it didn't, unfortunately, and it doesn't for us either. And not only did did the chief priest say, see to it for yourself. Remember, Pilate also washed his hands and said, this isn't on me. This is on you. You see to it for yourselves. So everybody who is in charge, which is fascinating, continues to just pass the buck along as if they have no responsibility whatsoever. Does this sound familiar at all? Well, it happens, right? But what's beautiful is Jesus says no. No, you cannot see to this for yourselves. There is only one who can die in a way that is going to save you. And I will endure it all without saying a word. Until it's time to cry out to the Lord, which was a very personal thing that he did. And then he will give up his spirit on our behalf. And what a beautiful thing that the Lord doesn't turn it over to us and say, No, you, you go and save yourselves, you mockers, you fools. You unwise, you impetulant children, why don't you figure it out for yourselves? Now remember, it was the mockers and the unwise and the impetulant children that he died for. As we saw that even in the disciples previously, as they proved that they couldn't keep any of the things that they said they would do, and we don't either, most of the time. And so as we step into this, I want us to at least have a A sense of the gravity of the situation, to quote uh, the, the former poet Vic Chestnut, it's the gravity of the situation comes on us like a bit of new knowledge. May the crucifixion, may the death of Jesus, may the mocking that he endures land on us in a way, not so that we are so grieved by it all, but that we actually are, are, are made all the more filled with gratitude because of what he endured and the heights of what he buys for us as he ransomed us in the depths of his sorrow and woe. Now the question that I have for you this morning is, what are you willing to endure to save someone? Well, I mean, what is it? How far are you willing to go to save someone? Which is an interesting question because if you were smart, you'd push back and say, but, uh, but who? I don't, wanna, I don't wanna just get casual around here. I wanna just go dying for anybody. Right? Think about what they're doing at the extension. You have any idea how much work it is to try to get people who are so broken and so ensnared and so pulled down and so overwhelmed in addiction to say, I'm gonna commit to you for a year and more to try to help you. That feels like death sometimes, I'm sure, and I know, from my own experience. And think about all the other different ways in which uh, people, people need and people hurt and we are called to step in. And think about how often we basically respond to most things this way. Really, we should respond this way. And get involved and do as the Savior has set us free to do. But don't don't be overwhelmed by that. Christ did what it is that we have the inability to do. And empowers us with everything we could possibly need in the resurrection to do that which is necessary. To draw others into the kingdom. To become his very hands and feet. So it's not that you actually have to die a death to see someone else saved. Actually, you are called to live a life, and a life more abundant. And so often I think we get that twisted around. None of us dying is actually going to save anyone else in the way that they truly need saving. Those of you who kept up with the story that just went on here, in here, I'm in America, that's in France, the story where the gentleman from Morocco took hostages in the market and the police officer bargained to have a, a, a girl named Julie set free. And he lost his life in the process. And everyone said, and what's fascinating is, what they talked about more was how he lived his life, that it made perfect sense that he would have done that, that he would have bargained for the life of another because of what they saw how he lived. It was the life that he lived that led to that moment. The way the journalist spoke of it was, was uh, beautiful. Beautiful. He said, it just, everything this man had done led up to this moment. It'd only been better if they'd just said sovereignty of God in there somewhere, but they can't do that. What a beautiful thing that, that, that we have the opportunities day in and day out in lots of ways. For those of you who are parents, you are laying down your life on a regular basis for your children in so many ways. For those of you who have aging parents, For those of you who who love in any way, shape, or form at all, for those of you who are married, you are laying your life down on a regular basis in so many ways. Take heart for what Christ has done for you. You have all the strength you need to continue. Um, And may we continue in the crucified Christ, the risen Christ, the seated Christ, the coming again Christ. And so as we step into this text, what I want us to see hopefully so clearly, not just from the text, from the table, from everything we've done this morning, that Jesus suffered the incomprehensible humiliation of the cross for the joy of our salvation that was set before him. It's very important that we understand that at some level, apart from the spirit, the the cross, what happens is absolutely incomprehensible to us. We cannot get our head around it apart from the spirit. Paul speaks of, of, of this phenomenon. Actually, in 2 Corinthians, he says, it is like there's a veil over your eyes, and unless the Spirit lifts it, you cannot begin to understand what Christ has done for you. So I'm going to pause and actually pray for us again, because I think that we need, we need a, a, a fresh wind of the Spirit to help us understand the crucifixion. I, I would hate for us to go another Easter uh, and, and just kind of, kind of, just go through the motions. So, so I, if it's okay with you, I'm gonna do it anyway. But, but uh, let's be in agreement. Uh, um, let's pray one more time. Father, as we approach this text, may we do so with uh, with trembling. May we do so with great humility. May we do so with awe and joy and gratitude. Thank you for the crucified Christ. Thank you for all that He endured. That we could not. Thank you that He. Uh, died death in a way that we will never know if we are in him. And we would never know even outside of him. It is a completely unique death, only one of its kind, so that we would have life and life more abundant. May we walk in that today. May we grow in that because of what we see here. May we, though we will see the depths of Christ's sorrow to some measure, incomprehensible to us through a glass darkly, and yet revealed in the light of your spirit, may we also see the heights of our atonement. May we, as we come to the table later this morning, taste it all the sweeter because of what we will hear here. In Christ's name, amen. All right, if you would give your attention to the text and the reading of God's word, this is Matthew 27, 32 through 54. Um, And we'll see again how Christ is mocked. And one commentator, before we get into it, um, actually a couple of commentators make a really interesting observation that being that I'm literary, I tend to agree with, but I won't die on a hill or make a new denomination out of this. But he, but he says that the three mockings that Christ endures on the cross are essentially an antithesis to uh, how Satan challenged him in the wilderness. Remember, Satan said because Christ was so hungry, he'd been fasting for 40 days or so. And he says, well, why don't you just turn this rock into bread? Why don't you feed, essentially saying, why don't you feed yourself, Jesus? And remember Christ quotes the word itself. He says, man does not, does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the living God. And then he, then he says, all right, well, why don't you, I'll carry you up to the top of the temple. Why don't you throw yourself off? Because, you know, there's that passage in the Psalms that says the angels will, will they'll, they'll catch you. Why don't we we prove to the world how much God loves you? As if saving Christ from death was how the world would know that God loves Jesus and us. And again, Jesus says no. And then Satan shows him the entire empire and he says, all of this can be yours. All you have to do, and it's really simple, you just have to bow to me. and I'll give it to you, free of charge no less. And again, Christ says no. And so what we're going to see on the cross is is an even more distorted version of those three things as Christ is mocked three times over, and probably even more than that. So as as, as we read the text, pay attention to how those things may connect. This is beginning in verse 32. As they went out, meaning the entire party after Christ had been mocked and scourged, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name. They compelled him to carry his cross, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they had put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king Of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he did say, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabakni. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after this resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. All right. So that's a lot of text and we're not gonna be able to do every jot and tittle, but the main thing we wanna focus on are the mockings and then what is uh, implied in, or what is declared in the tearing of the temple and the earthquake and the resurrection that comes. First thing we note is that uh, as, they're, as they're coming to the place of the skull, they grab someone in order to carry Jesus's cross beam. Now remember, he was brutally beaten, so chances are he just couldn't carry it. It would've weighed a significant amount And what's interesting is they know the man's name and where he's from, and that indicates that he becomes a believer. In fact, other members of his family are cited by Paul later on. So what that tells us is is the carrying of the cross drew Simon into the kingdom, Simon the Cyrene. And so as they go on, the first thing that they do with Jesus is they offer him, which is actually according to a prophecy in Psalm 69, they offer him, not narcotic laced wine, as sometimes is said, but with gall, which means, ever, ever heard the term bitter gall? Or you ever had your grandmother say, you just gall me to death? That's not a good thing, by the way. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, but it means that it is sour, it means that it is, it tastes like bile, it means that it is sickening. And so here he is. You know he, he remember, he's been up all night. And into the day, he's been tried, he's been beaten, he's been mocked, he has not been offered anything until now. And much like Satan in the wilderness, who says, Just turn these stones into bread, provide for yourself, these people say, Let us give you something which evidences what we think of you. How about some sour wine, you suffering man? Now, do you know it would have been like vinegar? Have you ever, when you're thirsty, do you ever think, I need me some vinegar? You, like Ron Burgundy, will decide that's a really bad decision on a hot day to drink vinegar or spoiled milk, either one. And so it's a bad idea because doesn't quenched thirst actually makes it 9,000 times worse and would have any sort of wounds, if you've ever dumped vinegar in a wound, would not have felt good at all. So they were not offering him anything he needed or anything as a, a, a sort of hospitable thing. It was further mocking. And according to prophecy in Psalm 22, they, they cast lots for his garments after they've crucified him, and now he's up on the cross, and the group of people who come by, they're wagging their heads, and they say, well, you thought you would tear the temple down. Why don't you climb down off the cross, crucified one, king of the Jews, much in the same way think about Satan taking him up to the temple and saying, "If God loves you so much. Cast yourself down and see if he doesn't save you. Christ will not climb down from the cross until it is finished. And what is the it? Our redemption, our atonement. And so them suggesting that he end his own suffering to prove to them who he is will not be done. And then you have the chief priests who have mocked and mocked and mocked They show up, and they say, oh, if God loves you so much, if he wants you, then why doesn't he save you? And probably in their minds was the time they asked for a sign, and remember, Jesus was rather sharp. He said, you wicked generation of Jonah, no sign will be given to you. It's already been given. You're you're not receiving anything further. I've already proven that I am the Christ. And so yet again, He doesn't respond just as when Satan says, I'll give you all of this if you just bow. In the same way the chief priests just say, look, if you'll just give in and do what we ask, we'll believe you as if the creature can say to the creator what the terms of engagement are. Which is something we do all the time. It's fascinating. We've been talking about this a little bit as we've dealt with some folks who... um, who've just just gotten sideways and they're, they're, they're in sin. And it's fascinating that they always want to dictate the rules of engagement. And just so you don't miss the plank in your own eye, it's the same for you too. Right? How many of you, when you get an email or a phone call from me, and I'm like, hey, let's grab lunch. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I, ne- I never hit you with the ellipse, but I'm going to start doing it. Um, uh, it, I, and this just happened recently, I had lunch with somebody, they're like, ah, I just, I didn't know what I was in trouble for. No, if you're in trouble, I'm not wasting lunch, I like to eat too much. <laughs> I, that, that can be done on the phone, I mean, that can be done elsewhere, right? Uh, and I don't want to ruin a good meal, but, but we, we all are concerned, and, and so we always want to dictate the rules of engagement. So here the chief priests are trying to declare their sovereignty and supremacy. And Christ refuses to acquiesce to them either. Doesn't say a word, endures their mocking as he is crucified. And he's even being mocked by the by the robbers on either side. We know the fuller story that one of them actually comes to understand something different. And there's actually a, a suggestion that the, the and I don't know, again, I wouldn't make a denomination out of this or Donna Hill, but that the two robbers were most likely involved in the insurrection in which Barabbas was. Was taken in and that the cross on which Jesus hung was actually intended for Barabbas. So that son of God died for another son of God in his place, truly fulfilling what had been said. And so as he's enduring all this, he refuses to dishonor the Lord his God with how he he endures. Because think about it. Think about this. If you had the kind of power that Jesus does how tempted would you be to just, just vaporize at least one? Just put one of them on notice, right? Just, just, just to mess with them. Not say much, but just like strangle one with your eyes or something. It would be hard, right? And yet he doesn't. And I don't want us to miss that. I don't, I don't, I don't want us to miss that, that it's actually harder when you have that kind of power to show any kind of restraint, to show any sort of kindness, to show any sort of, obedience when you have that kind of power coursing through you and you're being treated the way that he is being treated it is just incomprehensible to me I cannot get my head around it and I'm so thankful that he did it because there's no way I could no way uh, in heaven nor hell could I do it and so then we see as the mocking uh, is resolved in a sense that darkness falls on the land. And, and really, this is from about noon until 3 p.m. And now this should call to mind for us the ninth plague in the Exodus. Remember, the ninth plague is that darkness falls on Egypt, and it is so dark you can feel it. It's thick. And what it actually indicates is the presence of God's God's wrath is coming. Because remember what the tenth plague is. What's the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn. So really what's being signaled here is that judgment is falling and that the firstborn that will die will be Christ alone. That all that man had to endure in Egypt and all that was lost will be found. And that the stroke will fall upon God's son himself and no one else who who has faith in him alone. This also calls to mind a passage from Amos 8, 9, and 10 where he says very specifically that darkness will precede the coming of his judgment. Now this is really important for us because as the, as the, as the curtain is torn and the dead rise, um, all of that is actually symbol of judgment. The earth quaking, for those of you who have studied the Psalms much at all, that's often a sign of God's coming. Uh, And it usually is related to judgment, that the earth will quake and all of these things. And so the tearing of the temple uh, curtain, which was actually over the Holy of Holies, is that the Lord is now loose in the world. And uh, there is no longer any barrier between him and man. For those who are his children, there's nothing to fear. Amen? That God would want to dwell with us is a good thing. But for those who have hated him, who have mocked him, who have said he doesn't exist, who have declared themselves God over him, it's a tough day. And we need to be cognizant of that. As Spurgeon so often says, we should never speak of the judgment of another without tears in our eyes. And that anyone would suffer it should bother us, grieve us to the core. We should never dance at anyone's funeral. And so there is judgment coming. And that judgment is the stroke that falls on our sin, that falls on Christ himself. So it's really important that you recognize that in terms of your eternity, if you are in Christ, judgment has been rendered. Now, you may say, well, isn't there some other kind of judgment coming? Well, you better hope not in reference to eternality. You better hope that that's sealed and that's a done deal. Now, the further judgment will be the works that we do between the now and the not yet, which we've talked about in here before. So what you do in this life actually does matter. Right, 1 Corinthians 3 makes it very clear. What you build upon the foundation, which is Christ, it, it needs to be precious stones that can survive the refiner's fire. If you do haywood and stubble, it's going to be burned up. But what does it say, which is so comforting? But you will be saved from the fire. You remember Revelation 19, that the beauty of the bride, which is the church descending, is she is clothed in the righteousness of the saints. So, let us beautify her daily with how we live. And you may say, well, if you just give me a list of maybe maybe the top five, maybe some gold, maybe some silver, some copper, beryllium, you know, I'll do those things. It doesn't work like that. Because even the finest of things can be turned into hay, and stubble. But do remember how you live matters. Not that you will lose your salvation. But that how you live matters in the display of the glory of God. That it is about life and life more abundant. And that means something for the end. It means something in the new heavens and the new earth. Would that we would live in that way. Now, when Christ cries out the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tons and tons of ink have been spilled trying to get our head around that. Is he, is he just merely quoting Psalm 22:1 1, so that everybody would know of the good things that come after in that psalm, right? How the psalm resolves to, to let people know this is not the end. That's not a bad thing, but, but I don't think this is a theatrical effect. I don't think this is just a, a quotation, per se. Now, we do know that the word was was written firm upon Christ because he was the word, and he would have spoken it, which is actually telling for us in his darkest moment that the thing that he speaks is God's word. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Do we have it enough in our hearts that when we need it the most, we can speak it? How many situations turn us into pagans like that? And so, he has the word fast upon his lips, but even more important, is I think that we recognize that he is speaking something that you cannot, I cannot begin to or ever will be able to comprehend. You will never, ever be able to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me because of what Christ has done? We, it is a language that we do not understand. And I do want to read to you a couple things uh, from Primo Levi's survival in Auschwitz um, because he speaks to something that I think is, is similar to this. Um, when he first um, comes into the camp, uh, it begins to dawn on him uh, the gravity of the situation. And listen at this first statement that he makes. He says, for the first time, we became aware that our language lacks words to express this offense the demolition of man so what did he just say he just said we don't have the words to describe what's happening here in Auschwitz and all throughout Birkenau and otherwise we we don't even know how to comprehend the complete destruction of man in the same way we don't have the words to comprehend the humiliation of Christ because The words don't mean anything to us because we'll never experience it, and amen. That we would never know the forsakenness of the Lord our God. That we would never know that dark and haunting and cold um, divorce from the Lord our God. Later on, after they've been in in the camp for some years, and, and the situation is just brutal. In fact, the Russians are on their way. Um, and, and so they fully expect to be liquidated. What a term. Think about how, in reference to a human being, to use the term liquidate. What ends up happening, actually, is the Germans flee and just leave them to die. Most of them have typhoid and dysentery. The conditions are beyond horrific in the camp. They didn't leave them with any food, um, and they are, they are basically awaiting death dying one by one. This is what he says about this. He says, just as our hunger is not that feeling of missing a meal, so our way of being cold has need of a new word. We say hunger. We say tiredness, fear, pain. We say winter. They are different things. They are free words created and used by free men who lived in comfort and suffering in their homes If the loggers, which is a term for the prison camps, had lasted longer, a new harsh language would have been born. And only this language could express what it means to toil the whole day in the wind with temperature below freezing, wearing only a shirt, underpants, cloth jacket, and trousers, and in one's body nothing but weakness, hunger, and knowledge of the end drawing near. So what he's saying there is there is not, when we say, uh, oh, yeah, I understand suffering. No, no, no. No, that, that's a, that, the, the, we may use similar terms, but there really is a necessity for a different level of terminology in the same way. When you read Christ say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In great humility, you need to know there's no possible way for you to understand it. There's no possible, and praise God. That we cannot understand in full what's being said which is why I think so many men have spilled so much ink trying to figure it out when in essence what we should do is bow and give thanks before it's humbling reality so God receives Christ's spirit and judgment has fallen the the temple curtain is torn an earthquake has happened you've got uh, saints risen from the dead and sign of judgment And all of this signals to those who are in Christ that the new covenant is dawning. Ezekiel 37 speaks to this, that part of the evidence of the new covenant would be the resurrection. So the resurrection already begins for some. Listen at what uh, Herman Ritterbos, Dutch theologian, says about this section. He says, The kingship of Christ must be affirmed even in his cross. It is as the king of the Jews that he must be crucified and die. In the mocking words of men, God maintains the truth. Let me say that again. Because some of you speak mocking words. Some of you don't mean it, but you do. There are times that I do, and I wish someone would call me out. But in the mocking words of men, God maintains the truth. And it is not in spite of the cross that he is king, for rather it is because of the cross. For it is through the cross that he has made his people his own and that he rules over them. It is through the cross that he has made satisfaction for his own. So I want to ask you this question, and it's worth your time this Lord's Day Sabbath. Do you appreciate the depths of Christ's suffering on the cross for you? Now, if you're smart, you'd fire back and go, hey, no way. I can't even begin. That's a good answer. So you can skip that question for the rest of the day. But you're going to need to come back to it because you're going to forget. You're going to forget the answer sometimes. But the second question is even more important and one I think you can begin to comprehend and worth thinking about. For those of you who are in small groups, this is a good question to talk about. These aren't yes-no questions as it turns out. And it's a way for us to get to know each other better. Do you appreciate the heights of the atonement purchased by his crucifixion for you? See, the crucifixion is not just all sorrow and and, 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 and gravity and weight. It is the lightning of a tremendous burden. It is actually that which should cause us to celebrate what a gift that we get to have the Lord's table this morning. And so, do you appreciate what Christ has done for you? Do you take the time to meditate on and cultivate a deeper understanding of what it is? that? What does it mean to live life more abundant? Sometimes I think we, we and, and I've seen myself do it, I've seen you do it. You go, what does it mean to have life more abundant? Squirrel. Right? Loyal of Chicago. Um, We're we, we so distracted so easily. And it is a tough question. It really is. And it means so, so much to us. And yet we spend so little time really wrestling with it, and even more, do you pray and say, Lord, would you show me how to have life more abundant? Would you help me in this and not think you're just going to pray at once? It's something that we should persist in and demand, actually, because that is what we were promised. If you would turn back to the text and let's see Jesus buried in the risk of the faithful. Picking it up in verse 55. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there, sitting opposite the tomb. Now, what we see here is a group of people who are actually willing to risk it all to be near to Jesus, because he said he would rise again. They took his promise seriously. Now you need to understand for women to be involved at all in this time that was so heavily oppressively patriarchal in the worst sense of the word was a great risk to them because if he rises from the dead if his body disappears and they're the ones seen near the tomb who's going to pay for that? And if you think Rome is rough on men how do you think it treats its women? especially the women that need to be liquidated. So they were taking a great risk to be near this at all. In fact, amazingly, Joseph of Arimathea, he too takes a tremendous risk. He's rich. Why does he need to be near any of this? He could very easily do what I said we so often do, which is just put his hands over his eyes and let it be. What does it matter? If Jesus is going to raise from the dead, who cares what tomb it comes from? Why risk it? Because again, if that body disappears and it was Joseph's tomb in which it lay, who are they coming for? Him. He will answer. And if you think they're going to be kinder to him than they were to Jesus, you don't understand Rome. And so... These folks are willing to participate at great risk in the story. And it's part of God's sovereign continuing to make sure a remnant is always present and there to make sure that the gospel story continues to go forward. That they would risk everything to just get a glimpse of the risen Christ. They show greater faith than the disciples who will be scattered and will be hiding instead of present at the tomb, waiting for the arrival of their king. And so, we see here that to be a woman is not a bad thing. To be rich is not a bad thing. To be faithful is the most important thing. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this portion of the text. He says, this fact is full of comfort and encouragement. It shows us that there are some quiet souls on the earth who know the Lord. And the Lord knows them, and yet they are little known by the church. It shows us that there are diversities of gifts among Christ's people. There are some who glorify Christ passively and some who glorify him actively. There are some whose vocation it is to build the church and fill a public place. And there are some who only come forward like Joseph in times of special need. But each and all are led by one spirit and each and all glorify God in their several ways. See, every single one of us is gifted. Every single one of us has the opportunity to glorify God in the way that he has gifted us. The question is, are you doing it? So often I think we we think way too much of ourselves. Like we're worried that God's going to send us to China. He don't need you messing up what he's got going on in China. He'll use you right here, Cobb County. You can mess up what's going on right here. And so don't think so much of yourself that you're afraid to use your gift. In fact, I, I, I'll quote Francis Schaeffer again. Some of you are not using your gift because, I, well, if I can't do it perfect, if I don't, I don't have everything together, then I, I can't do anything. Well, when's that coming? When's that day supposed to dawn? It won't. And, and, and two, we as church leaders have to be careful that we don't in, seem to insinuate that if you don't have everything together, you can't do anything. Now, it's slightly disconcerting that most people think they are called to teach. Mm, James said not many of you should be called to teach. And trust me, I know this firsthand. You're going to get in trouble for some of the things you say. Better that you not open your mouth and prove what you're not. Instead, use the gift you've been given in so many ways. Everyone's gifted. Every one of us can serve. And it's not that you've got to do something specifically in the local church. You can do it out in the world. People all the time, I mean, they, they, you know, they come to us and they're like, hey, really think we should have a Christian shuffleboard league? Oh, me too. When are you starting it? I just need an announcement for the bulletin. Oh, no, not, see, now I'm an idea, I'm the idea man. See, I'm all about the idea. I thought y'all were the, the arm to the do the thing people. <laughs> no. Now, I don't want to rob you of that amazing opportunity to start a Christian shuffleboard league here in Cobb County. I think it's going to go gangbusters. Um, <clears throat> so don't get mad if you come to us with an idea and our, our, our pushback is, okay, when are you starting? It? What can we do to help you? That's what we're here for. We know our job. Our job is Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 to equip the saints for the work of the Christian shuffleboard ministry and other things. Right? And so we, we will help you in any way that we can. But don't get, I'm not gonna gather the crowd for you because I'm not the Holy Spirit. See, what most people want is, is my uh, power and approval as if I had any. Come stand at the back door with me and listen to some of what gets said. Just be a fly on the wall. You'll realize, ain't no power here. No, there's not. And that's good. Praise God. And so, are you using what you have? But even more importantly, are you thankful for all the people that the Lord has sovereignly placed throughout your personal history to ensure that you've heard the gospel when you've heard it and how you've heard it? So who are some of those people? Who are some of the faithful people who all along the way have ensured in God's sovereignty that you'd hear the gospel? That could be family members, neighbors, co-workers. You know, for me, it's a lady that I call Mama Gwen, uh, who I worked with. In fact, she's personally responsible for me and Susan being married uh, so she, she blessed me. I can't tell you how much. And Mama Gwen every day would share the gospel with me. And, and, and as mean as I could be to her, she'd laugh and, you know, say all that stuff. And, and, and she, but she stayed faithful, right? And she didn't know who Calvin was, which I can't hold that against her. She didn't know who Luther was. and I can't hold that against her. She didn't know who Piper, any of these people, she didn't care about all that. She knew Jesus and that's all that mattered to her. And she wanted me to know Jesus. And she has the opportunity to know that she has fruit, not only here, but in eternity as a result of her efforts. And there's many other people as well. The guy that I worked for was paralyzed from the neck down. He was a Christian and I watched him. Same thing. The Lord was gracious. So take time to think about it. And if those people are still somewhere where you can reach them. Just send them a thank you card. Let them know what they've meant to you. No matter how small it is, no matter what role they've played, what an amazing thing for them to be able to know how much they've meant to you. Um, and, And what a beautiful thing in doing that to encourage them. And then I would ask you, what are some of the ways that you're being faithful to make sure that coming generations will hear this story? A lot of stuff to be done to make sure it happens at lots of different levels. And so where are you applying it, and how are you thinking about it, and how you interact with people? Turn back to the text, and let's look at Jesus buried part two, where we see the distrust of the faithless. This is verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. You have soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So what we see here is, is that the the chief priests recognize that if if Jesus somehow rises, if he disappears, if anybody thinks he's risen, that's going to be way worse than the crucifixion. Dying for people is one thing. But rising from the dead is is to be declared not guilty by God himself. That is power that no man has come up with so far. And so they are deeply worried about it. But notice Pilate, he don't want anything more to do with this. He says, go see to it for yourselves. You've got guards. You, you do it. I'm tired of this. And they do. They go and they set a guard and they do everything they can. But as we will see next week on Easter, it was not enough. Listen to what John Chrysostom says. Behold, both a seal, a stone, and a watch, and they were not able to hold him. So what parts of the story of the person work of Christ do you struggle to trust? What part do you struggle to trust? And then what are you doing to invest in a deeper understanding of what you struggle to trust? Because if you're just struggling, it's not really a struggle if you're not putting anything into it, is it? And so what are you doing to engage it? So many that say, I don't believe in this stuff. Okay, how much you put into it? Mm, 37 seconds maybe, a couple thoughts, read a blog, read a blog. Yeah, that guy, whatever neo-atheist, I don't know. Went to a debate. I ain't putting nothing into something that is as eternally significant as this. It deserves way more from us, especially you who are already Christians. It deserves a whole lot more from you because it is for you to live life more abundant because you've been delivered from death by the crucified one. So what do we learn from Matthew 27, 32 through 66? It teaches us three things. Christ suffered that we could not, what we could not bear to suffer in order to redeem us. For the joy that was set before him, he suffered the crucifixion and the mocking. Two, that God sovereignly ensures that there are faithful people uh, so that the gospel will go forth. You are here today, so many of you, because of faithful people who all along the way a uh, risk to make sure you could hear. Think about what a risk it is to even share the gospel with someone at work. We're so worried about ourselves and, and how people, what people think about us, and yet there are people who don't care about what you think about them. They care what you think about Jesus uh, so that you will know him. And then the distrust of the faithless cannot prevent the power of the resurrection. And amen. Try as hard as we might. We've been trying to stamp out Christianity for a long, long time. They've been trying to put it to death for a long time. Every time they do, the blood of the martyrs actually is the soil and seedbed of the church. As it was in the crucifixion and will continue to be so. We have nothing to fear in Christ alone. So, knowing that and thinking that through, let us come to the table this morning with great joy. um, Because of the life that Christ has purchased for us. Because of the gift that he has given to us. If the elders would go ahead and come forward. Let us remember what we read not so long ago and what was the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper, how Christ made it so clear to them that this is not the end. And he even told them, he said, look, you're going to be struck as, uh, I'm going to be struck and you're going to be scattered, but that is not the end. You are going to fail to watch and pray, but that is not the end. I'm going to be crucified and that will not be the end, but the beginning. The beginning of the new covenant in my broken body and spilled blood for you and he said now i want you to be able to have something i want you to be able to as often as you remember me to be able to recognize that that there's something so basic in all of this and yet something so profound and he grabbed bread and he took it and he said this this is my body and it is broken for you In the brokenness of that body, we have the deliverance from shame and guilt and, and fear. What a gift. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, and you don't, you don't believe that Christ is who he says he is, it's not enough for you to think he's a nice guy. It is not enough for you to think he was a good teacher. It is not enough. If you don't recognize him as Lord and Savior, just don't eat. Um, you can grab lunch afterwards. It's better, better for you to do that than eat to your own destruction And mock him further. But uh, if you know that Christ is your Savior, if you are forgiving as you have been forgiven, if you recognize that it is Christ alone, through God's grace alone, by faith alone, that you are in fact a son or daughter of the Most High God, you are welcome to eat this morning, knowing that you will be nourished in the broken body of Christ, that you will be uh, nourished in life more abundant. So when you receive the bread, if you would hold it, and uh, we'll take together as family. But I want you to think about the gift, the gift that Christ has given in his broken body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this small portion of bread. It is but uh, a pinprick of all that we have in eternity in Christ, of how we have been transformed, how we have been empowered. Would you nourish our faith this morning? Would you help us to, to have great gratitude for the heights of the atonement that was purchased in Christ on the cross. We pray for this in Christ's name, amen.